0: Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.
1: I'm Alison Balance, and welcome to this Hour-Changing World podcast from RNZ. In our first show for 2020, we are going to head to the hills in search of a truly unique New Zealand bird, the rock wren, or tuke. It lives above the treeline in the subalpine zone of the South Island. It's a high-altitude specialist, and it's even been recorded above 3,000 metres. That's where snow lies year-round. The rock wren has one living relative – the tiny forest rifleman which is our smallest bird both birds have very high pitched calls which don't work well on radio but here's a rock wren call just to give you a quick sense now rifleman and rock wren are the only survivors of a distinct and ancient group of birds there used to be at least seven species in the group including the flightless lyle's wren which famously went extinct on Stevens Island in the late 1800s, due in no small part to the lighthouse keeper's cat. There was also the tragic case of the bush wren, which went extinct in the late 1960s, when rats invaded their last island home of Big South Cape, or Tokihepa near Stewart Island. Just to put their evolutionary distinctness in context, we're all familiar with passerines, perching birds like tui and sparrow. Most of the passerines are songbirds, and there is a second large group of mostly flycatchers. Then there is the third and most ancient group of passerines, which are the acanthysitai, now represented by just two endemic species, rifleman and Rock wren. Department of Conservation scientist Kerry Weston invited me to join her and rock wren rangers Amanda Sanders and Toria scott Fife at one of her alpine study sites in South Westland. We plan to do it in December when the rock wrens are nesting. Unfortunately, the West Coast had a lot of very wet weather at the end of last year, and trying to find a two-day fine weather window when we could get in and out of the hills was, to say the least, challenging. Finally in mid-December we decided to try our luck. The big question hanging over us was whether the helicopter could make it in two days in a row.
0: We're up at Lake Graney which is on the very western end of the Haas Range And we've just managed to fly in, about which we're very excited,
1: because the weather forecast is not great, is it?
0: Uh, No, we're hoping to uh, sneak in some nest checks before the uh, next round of fronts. It's been a pretty rough season up here for for these guys, so, uh, yeah, we're going to get out and make hay while the sun shines. Mm -hmm. Well, it's
1: already not shining. (laughs) (laughs) So what's our plan, Amanda?
0: Uh, We're going to head over
2: to an area we call The Fan on Thirsty Ridge and go and do a nest check on a nest that has chicks in it at the moment and uh, then see if we can go find a new nest.
1: Excellent. Well, you lead the way, and I'll follow slowly. (laughs) (laughs) And so, with raincoat and waterproof over-trousers on, I follow Rock Wren ranger Amanda through the wet tussock. Uh, Where are we now? We've walked for a few minutes from your little hut.
2: Yeah, uh, so now we're standing on the edge of Minimia, Lake Minimia, just about to head out onto the rock fan. We're just on the other side is uh, the nest we're going to check with chicks called Paula.
1: Where would you typically find rock red nests, Kerry?
0: When there's high predator pressure, we've sort of been noticing that they tend to nest more on the bluffy areas, but in lower predator situations, you tend to find them nesting in more accessible places.
1: But they like squeezing into cavities between rocks. Is that what they do?
2: Yeah, they kind of sort of dig out the moss and all of that lovely organic matter that's, and amongst the rocks, and then in building their nest in those holes that they dig out.
1: So when you look around here, there's actually a lot of potential for where a rock wren could nest. We got, we do have steep rock bluffs. We've got piles and jumbles of rocks. Yep. Quite a few options.
2: Yeah, there are quite a few pairs around this area. Uh, for example, there's a pair that's up in that big rock fall over there, and some big bluffs up there. There's another one that's in that saddle in a big rock, and then there's a pair that we know is nesting up in these cliff faces up here. So they're in a variety of
0: spots <laughs> i think they put quite a bit of thought into where they nest because sometimes you can find them you know weighing up two or three locations before they settle on a spot uh and even uh, i've seen them you know begin building and then after a day or two abandon it for another better looking spot <laughs> it can take them you know five or six days to build the nest oh i
1: just heard a rock rain.
0: So how long have you been monitoring this one for, Amanda? Uh, This was one of our first ones. Right, so this one's close to fledging.
2: Yeah, last time we were here
0: two days ago, it was taking some pretty big bugs back.
1: So what's the significance of taking pretty big bugs back? Uh,
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's basically how we work out what stage of of nesting they're at. So when the chicks are really small, they're taking in more soft-bodied, sort of smaller things. Like little
1: caterpillars and things. Yeah,
0: yep. And then as the chicks get bigger and their demands are higher you start seeing big wetter and more chitinous things like cicadas going in.
1: How many days are the chicks in the nest before they fledge?
0: So it takes on average 24 days to go from hatching to fledging.
1: So three and a half weeks so in that three and a half week span you see their diet significantly change is that because you're not actually going into the nest and looking at the chicks?
0: Yeah so we try to disturb them as, as least as possible whilst keeping an eye on which stage of development they're at. So we can tell from the size of the food going in and also how often the parents are, are visiting. So the the frequency at which they're visiting increases as well. So as the chicks get bigger, you see that there's no break between visits, you know, as one parent comes out, another one's going in.
1: So the kids are really demanding, feed me, feed me. That's right. <laughs> now, the, these calls that we can hear, they might be being picked up by my microphones, but I almost imagine with certainty that the radio audience won't be able to hear it because rock rain calls are incredibly high-pitched. They're like riflemen, aren't they?
0: That's right. They're they're not quite as high as riflemen, but they are incredibly high frequency. Um, We think that sound travels really well in these sort of open habitats, and a lot of people, as they age, lose that range of hearing. So, you know, I can play the calls to some people in my office and they can't even hear them.
1: I don't think we've actually said how small or how big these birds are so what size are they
0: so the males are a bit smaller than the females the the males weigh on average 14 grams and the females weigh around 19 or 20 grams
1: so what other bird that people might be more familiar with would be about that kind of weight so they're a lot 30. smaller than
0: a robin maybe sort of more similar to a tomtit, somewhere in between a rifleman and a and a tom so
1: and really long legs
0: Really long legs and really big feet. Yeah, they've got these really amazing big feet, perfect for rock climbing. So they don't fly very much, but they do a lot of uh, rock climbing. So when you see them close up, everyone's sort of quite amazed at how big their feet actually are. It's very disproportionate.
1: I haven't seen one for a very long time, but I remember they bob a lot up and down.
0: They do. That's sort of one of the you know, rock-red quirks, this bobbing behaviour, and nobody knows exactly why they do it. Some people think it's a territorial thing. Others think it might be used in, in hunting their insect prey.
1: Calibrating their binocular
0: vision. <laughs> exactly, but really we don't know for sure.
1: So what's going on here, Amanda?
0: She's
2: hopping over the rocks, bobbing away with a little white moth in her mouth, uh,
0: slowly slowly making her way up towards the nest.
1: But she doesn't fly up and high at all?
0: No, they they spend a lot more time on the ground. They actually stick to the same sort of access route and the male and the female have a a different pathway into the nest. So sometimes you can work out which bird it is just by which way they're, they're going home. So that's a nice sheltered spot from the rain and the wind. It's slightly elevated so that the snow doesn't gather
1: some kia calling in the distance and we traditionally think of kia as being an alpine bird but actually rock wrens are the most alpine bird we've got, aren't they?
0: Yeah, that's right. That's a common uh, misconception with kia that they are an alpine parrot but they predominantly nest below the tree line. Um, These are the only bird in New Zealand that actually spends its whole life above the tree line.
1: And it's one of our smallest ones. Ironic, isn't it? It is very ironic.
0: Tough little things. Right, so she's just gone into the nest now with her moth, spending a bit of time at the entrance. This can mean two things. It can mean, yep, they're ready to fledge and she's trying to entice them out, or the other slightly more worrying, concerning scenario is that the nest has failed. Let's hope this is a happy ending.
1: What are the chances of a happy ending?
0: So the last time that we monitored up here, um, not a single nest out of around 60 nests that we were following failed.
1: That's extraordinary.
0: (laughs) It is extraordinary. But it hasn't always Um,
1: been that way, has it? No,
0: it hasn't. So when we first started nest monitoring back in sort of 2013-14, only 20-30% to of nests were making it through. And the majority were were being uh, wiped out by stoats. And so two seasons later, we established a trapping network up here of uh, 90 kill traps.
1: So they target rats and stoats?
0: That's right, yep, rats and stoats. So we've been alternating between the 150 and the 200s. So we put one of those every 200 metres and we check them monthly through summer. We can't check them during winter because it's just too snowy and dangerous up here. And following the establishment of the traps, I think our nesting success was up to 60%. The following year, 70% of the nests made it. And the year after that, we we're on 93% of the nests um, making it through.
1: Well, that just really brings home how bad the stoats are for the rockwrens. If you start off with only 20 to 30% of your nests getting through to more than 90 that's amazing.
0: Yeah, is there a fledgling? I think she's trying to entice them out. I'm going to go and feel in, inside the nest and check and see what size the others are. So you can see the, the nest entrance just up here. So this is quite rare that we can actually...
1: Well, we can just walk up to this one.
0: We can, and we can...
1: So the nest is made of moss. It's beautiful.
0: Um, it's, it's lined with moss and feathers... And then on the outside, they sort of weave it with tussock. Yeah, they can line them with a phenomenal number of feathers. One uh, nest that we found up here, um, when they'd finished using it, we actually opened up and had a look, and there were 414 feathers in there. What kind of feathers? Could you tell? That one was a mixture of kea, kiwi, puppets.
1: Wow. <laughs> Little scavengers. So you're going to reach in.
0: So I'm just going to reach in and see if I can feel anything inside. You know what? We've got an empty nest. This nest has just fledged. Probably this morning. They've probably seen a break in the weather and thought, let's go for it. So that's really neat. So let's go and find how many uh, fledglings they've got. There's
2: buckwheat everywhere down here, Alex.
1: Now I stopped to take a picture of the nest and you took off and I heard a shout of, there's rock wren everywhere. I can hear them.
0: They are, they're calling everywhere. They've fledged and we're just trying to work out how many chicks there are. So this is a happy ending. This is really great.
1: The calls are coming from every direction.
0: Yep, so mum and dad are still going to be trying to to feed them for the next few days at least. Um, They can stick around for a, a week or two. So what they usually do is tuck the, the fledglings in under some vegetation. And um, you'll just see the, the mother and father coming back um, to the same spot. I might go down underneath and try and work out how many there are. That's a fledgling there. Look at the way it's flying.
1: Oh, it's fluttering a lot.
0: One, Two, three, four, five, six. So that means there's at least four
1: fledglings. So you reckon you've got to six already, which would be four chicks. What would be That's the right. maximum number?
0: So the maximum would be five. So they can have anywhere between one and five. They're
1: everywhere. That's brilliant. They're just, they're scuttling around down in those rocks. Bobbing. There's a lot of bobbing, a lot of calling. And you can see them feeding.
0: Yeah, so I think we've got five birds down here, another one over there, that makes six. So we've got rock wren everywhere. <laughs> we've almost made a little rock wren paradiso up here.
1: You absolutely have.
0: Yeah, it's become this little island in the sky. No, oh, it's really great to see.
1: So those stoat traps that we walked past on our way here are doing a great job.
0: Yeah, so when conditions are good, these guys can really multiply up and I think that's why they respond so well to to the predator control. So they could produce a couple of clutches this season. So when we first started in here, our first surveys, we counted around 100 adults and last count, last season, we're up to 250 adults um, just within this This area. So we've more than doubled the population.
1: I wonder how many you could fit in here.
0: Well, that's a good question. Things, you know, real estate was looking quite tight um, last year.
1: So, what does a good territory have to have in it?
0: Um, It's got to have bluffs. Quite often there's a, a boulder field or a fell field with lots of little crevices and things inside it to shelter from the elements. And subalpine vegetation, where they spend a lot of time gleaning insects. Little uh, caterpillars and moths.
1: What else would be up here? Spiders?
0: Uh, spiders, <laughs> yep, they'll take on a spider. Um, Could be little
1: you, cockroaches, I would think.
0: Yep, you often see them with weta hanging out of their mouth, cave weta. And oh, I've okay. seen them taking cave weta into their chicks as the chicks get bigger.
1: Yes, and we should point out that the misters or the cloud is rolling in across the lake.
2: This is the weather for the area that we've been having majority of the time? <laughs>
1: well, I have to say, when you can see it, it's an extremely pretty landscape. <laughs> but I imagine that for most of the time you're not seeing it. It makes me marvel even more at these rock greens, that they live in such a hostile environment. It's incredible. I mean, I, I know that's my perception of the environment, but it's not like they get a lot of calm, sunny days up here.
2: No, it definitely uh, makes me think they're, they're quite tough.
1: There's something that people need to know about rockwrens that I've only just discovered today. They don't have down.
0: They don't have down. Isn't that crazy for this little alpine bird that endures these um, really challenging conditions up here? So they're born naked and they stay naked until they grow feathers? That's right. They've got no down under their feathers at all. And we
1: still have no idea what they do in winter?
0: No, I mean, for six months of the year, this place is covered in snow. And ice. And these birds are still up here.
1: What do you suspect?
0: I suspect that they go into some sort of torpor, so they slow everything down to conserve energy and almost go to sleep, if you like, in, in one of these rock crevices. But um, I'm yet to prove that. There's birds overseas, say hummingbirds, for instance, that use torpor to conserve energy when temperatures drop or food's scarce. Well, in Ecuador, the hill star hummingbird basically goes into torpor every night because it's at the equator and every day is like summer
1: and every night is like winter. <laughs> they, they go into torpor every night as far as I understand.
0: Exactly, and there's a bird, um, the common paw will in North America, that can actually um, almost hibernate it. I mean, we do call it hibernation. It, it, it drops its its body temperature and metabolic rate for several weeks. So in terms of finding out what
1: rock greens do in winter...
0: Is this something you're about
1: to try and solve? Is this one of the great mysteries that you think you might have the technology now?
0: Yeah, this is one of those enduring questions. We've got these really small transmitters now that are way less than a gram. So they're basically the size of your little fingernail. And we just tried putting those on the birds last year and it went really well. So that just means that we can track the birds to their precise location. But something really cool about these transmitters is that they also measure the body temperature of the, of the bird. So if, if the bird's uh, body temperature drops, we'll be able to tell that from the pulse rate or the beep rate of the transmitter.
1: Ah, oh, so you don't even have to catch the bird, you can just stand there and go, it's beeping more slowly, therefore its pulse rate has dropped to X or whatever it is.
0: That's right, so it's all being calibrated in the, in the lab so we know exactly which pulse rate uh, corresponds to, to which body temperature. So when are you going to put them on? Well, we came in in June um, last year when the snow had just started sort of get gathering and it was quiet, you know. Um, all of the territories were silent. So we knew the birds were here, but we couldn't find them. You know, we don't know what they were doing, but it was obviously too late. Uh, so we're going to try and come in um, just before the snow starts falling and get the transmitters on and try and solve that mystery a little more.
1: That'll be so exciting. How long are the batteries going to last for on these transmitters? How long will they keep sending you a signal?
0: Oh, that's the big problem. At that size, uh, the batteries only really last for around three weeks. But, you know, I've been waiting for sort of 15, 20 years to to, to solve this. So, um, you know, what's another few years?
1: Our next mission takes us back to Lake Graney to see if we can find a new rock wren nest.
2: So we were up here yesterday and we found a pair, um, but unfortunately due to the clag and the wind we couldn't pinpoint their nest, we couldn't get any feathers to them so that they could uh take us to their to
1: their nest. Tell me more about the system of finding a nest.
2: <laughs> Basically when we find when we find a bird or a pair of birds, we try to get upwind of them and we release a few feathers. Which down waft them.
1: enticingly in the breeze yes, past them.
2: Exactly. <laughs> and then they go, ooh, feather, that would make my nest nice and cosy and they, they grab the feather and take it back to their nest so when they grab the feather we kind of go on to full chase mode and try and follow them to where they're taking that feather White So feathers. that's why
1: we're all carrying bags of feathers
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> now I got for a second quite excited because I thought I'd heard the bird, but that's <laughs> just you and Kerry down the hill playing calls from mm-hmm. little speakers Yep so
2: this is how we sort of initially try to find them, get them to respond to this call.
1: So we're drawing an an immediate blank. So you've played some calls, you're not hearing anything.
0: No, nothing but the wind rattling past my ears.
1: And I just don't care.
0: You know, this is the, often the case when we're looking for nests. We can go for a couple of hours um, until we get onto something. So it can be quite a slow process. And a cold process.
1: <laughs> Did you do nest monitoring last year?
0: No, so we had stopped, but um, the reason that we've re- restarted again this year is because it's what we've been referring to as a mega-mast year. So the, the beech forest down below has been flowering prolifically. And what what a lot of people don't realise is that the tussock, actually responds to the same sort of climatic signal and usually masts at the same time um, as the beech trees. So that creates a whole lot more food in the system, which we think drives up predator numbers above the tree line as well. So the tussock seed provides a lot of food for mice, and then the mice provide a lot of food for stoats.
1: So how much did the tussock seed this year? Is it as a mega or a mast as it is down in the forest?
0: In the beech trees here, we're getting something like 8,000 beech seeds per square metre in our, in our seed fall traps. That's the highest seed density that I've seen since we've been monitoring up here. And the tussock flowered moderately. We had around 20 to 30 flowers per tussock on average. Some of the biggest um, tussock masts I've seen have had up to 80 flowers on average per, per tussock.
1: They've done a 1080 drop in the forest?
0: they have done a, a, a 1080 drop during the winter, but that was only to the tree line. And then we've had our traps running, you know, two years ago when we, when we monitored the nests up here. Not a single one was preyed upon. So we just want to test that that holds true in a, in a really high predator pressure year.
1: You've had video cameras at some nests, haven't you? What kind of things have you recorded?
0: The first year when we realised that there was a, an issue with the nesting, we put out cameras on about 10 nests and we're monitoring 20 down at Homer Gertrude Tunnel and that year every single nest failed and on all of the cameras we we captured stoats um coming and raiding the the nests yeah some even during the day and at one nest there was a whole family of um of stoats
1: so the Homer Tunnel Gertrude Saddle area in Milford that's another one of your study areas how many study areas do you have
0: um, so we've got a, got them dotted throughout their range, um, which is the
1: South Island only.
0: That's right. So you only find them along the Southern Alps, sort of in the uh, and in the mountainous areas of the South Island. We've got the Homer Gertrude study site where we've got the New Zealand Alpine Club doing predator trapping down there, and they've been doing that since 2012, 2013. And then we've got Lake Row, which is on the Dusky Track. And we don 't do any predator control down there at all that's that 's our, that's our non treatment site to compare the effect of our management with and then we've got a couple of sites up in Kaharangi National park as well so looking at
1: predators and how they impact species like rock rocklands in the alpine zone, this is a pretty new thing that we're doing. Did we not realize there were predators up here before
0: <laughs> Hindsight's a wonderful thing, but i think I think it was a common sort of misconception that the They're somewhat buffered by the colder temperatures at altitude. And then back in 2007, a paper came out sort of indicating that rock wren were declining across their range.
1: What's their threat status now?
0: Uh, So they're nationally endangered, so they're the second highest level of threat status. There's actually a northern and a southern population now, Um, so we manage the, the northern birds separately, and their conservation status is nationally critical. Yes. Yeah, so the birds in the northern half of the South Island are in a lot worse of a state.
1: And do you think that's because the conditions are slightly milder and that we have more predators up in the alpine zone up there?
0: Yes. Yeah, so our sites in Kaharangi are certainly a lot more ratty and I guess that's one of the the risks with climate change is that you know things like rats and and possums the are temperature limited not so happy in the in the colder environments. And so with a warming climate, you know, these sorts of areas could become more hospitable and that just puts more pressure on our alpine species.
1: So I just have to say, there is a white feather on the ground here from their failed efforts in the gale force wind yesterday <laughs> <laughs> to follow these mysterious rock wrens to their nest. Uh, birds which we haven't even heard sight or sound of.
0: Yeah, it's amazing how you can go back to the same place, um, exactly the same place, you know, a day later or even sometimes a few hours later and tropes around and just see or hear nothing.
1: Well, we have Kia and we have yeah. snow falling. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this it's is beautiful. lots of snow. This is beautiful.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> this is
1: ridiculously it. heavy snow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, folks, that may be the end of the story. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm going to keep on recording in the snow. (laughs) I may have to put my sound recorder away. Now I do have a little postscript to add. Kerry and I did manage to get away from the Haast range the following afternoon during a break in the weather, but not until we had waited out a severe storm, which made us very glad to be in a warm dry hut. And we just hoped that the newly-fledged Rockwren family we'd met had found a good place to shelter from the rain. And a big thanks to Rock Green scientist Kerry Weston from the Department of Conservation and Rock Green rangers Amanda Sanders and Toria scott Fife. I'm Alison Balance and this Our Changing World podcast from RNZ first aired on the 23rd of January 2020. Just head along to rnz.co.nz slash World to listen again and you can sign up for our free weekly email newsletter while you're there. Alternatively, find us as RNZ, Our Changing World, The Podcast, on your favourite podcast app. Now, if you have kids, do check out the RNZ podcast, Best of Storytime RNZ. It features a whole range of family-friendly stories written by and about New Zealanders that you can download and listen to at your leisure. You'll find it on the podcast page at rnz.co.nz or on your favourite podcast app, Search for RNZ Best of Storytime. Stay in touch. We're on Facebook and Twitter at RNZ Science. Thanks for your company. Catch you next time, Namahi. Botox Cosmetic, Ana Botulinum Toxin A, FDA approved for over twenty years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you.